Have you ever thought about cooking duck or pheasant for a nice dinner? Duck is in the grocer's freezer. Quail might be too. Feathered game is tasty as long as it's cooked properly. Do you avoid cooking game birds because they seem too tricky to cook? The Eating Liberty Podcast, episode 271, Food and Freedom Once a Week for Life. Hello folks, Dan Reed here. For most of my life, I worked in restaurants and hotel kitchens. I've been the butcher and the baker. I've worked for chefs who taught me plenty, and I've returned that in kind in commercial kitchens and as a chef instructor at a culinary school. Now, I'm sharing that with you. The Escoffier series continues with the conclusion of Chapter 9, The Game Chapter. The last Escoffier episode covered furred animals, mostly venison. Today, we're covering feathered game. I'm going to go over some pheasant tips and procedures. Now, if you may remember, game isn't really game in the U.S. as much as it is farm-raised game. The venison roadkill I got one time had a much stronger venison taste than the farm-raised stuff I've served in restaurants. By extension, I apply that to pheasants. I've never had actual wild pheasant, but plenty of farm-raised pheasant. Now, I will add that the quail that flew into my friend's window and suicided itself tasted just like the quail from the purveyor. Maybe they're just too small to taste like anything else. Escoffier has some introductory information about birds I am going to cover, uh, which means I'm going to read a little bit. So he starts, it is necessary to, pardon me, if it was necessary to list every, each, boy, my goodness, if it was necessary to list each and every edible wild bird, the list would be far too long, so only those in general use are given. There are 10 main categories of birds, and then he goes through the various species of pheasant, two, hazel grouse, uh, different kinds of grouse, three, uh, ducks. Four, snipe and woodcock. Five, various species of plover, lapwings, sandpipers. Six, are quail. Seven, thrushes and blackbirds. Eight, larks. Nine, warblers. Ten, buntings. I know I went fast, but it's really most of that we'll never see. Uh, He continues, the birds in categories one and four improve by being allowed to go slightly gamey, which means that they should be hung unplucked for a few days in an airy space so that they start to decompose. This enhances the special aroma of the flesh and brings about an added distinction to the culinary value. Whatever opinions people may have about the subject of gaminess, there can be no doubting that the taste of fresh pheasant or woodcock and that of a well-hung one differs wildly, that of the unhung being dry and flavorless, whereas after proper hanging, they are tender, full of flavor, and of an incomparable aroma, end quote. 
Now, he does go on a little bit to also discuss larding and barding of the birds, which he finds, well, the, the, the larding, remember, is to sew fat into the flesh with a special kind of a larding needle, uh, pretty useless. Uh, barding has the advantage, which I mentioned in the last episode, of at least keeping the flesh, uh, the outside of the flesh from getting stringy and hard. So it's easy to both cut for the cook and eat for the, for the, for the consumer, the guest. Um, a, so a curious cook would notice that the procedures for pheasant vary wildly, as you read through this section, compared to some of the procedures, say, for beef or for chicken. Perhaps the most famous beef dish is Tornado's Rossini, which is a four-ounce slice of beef tenderloin, that's called the Tornado, cooked in a pan, a good nice sear, you could grill it, to mid-rare, served on a toasted crouton with a nice fat slice of cooked foie gras and a slice of truffle on top of that, and the whole thing sauced with a Madeira-enriched demi-glaze finished with truffle essence. Now, that might sound complicated, and in some ways it is, with all the elements at the ready, however, it is pretty easy to execute. Escoffier's pheasant procedures are, in most of the cases, substantially more complex. Anyone reading Tornado's Rossini would see dollar signs and probably pick something else if only cost was a factor. Procedure could be intimidating. To illustrate that point, there is this procedure, uh, number 3599, and I'm not even sure I can say this even in English, pheasant a la angoumoise. I have no idea what that word means. Stuffed pheasant with a mixture of 300 grams of fresh, very fresh pork kidney fat passed through a fine sieve. Four and a half ounces of truffles cut into quarters, 12 chestnuts cooked in white bouillon and cooled, and salt and pepper and a touch of grated nutmeg. Wrap the stuffed bird in slices of salt, pork, fat, and roasted jelly for four to five minutes. Remove the slices of fat seven, eight minutes before being completely cooked so as allow to allow it to color. Serve accompanied with sauce perigot, which is a... Um, Demi-glaze style sauce with truffles. That's actually one of the easier stuffed kinds of dishes that he comes up with. One of them is to marinate an entire foie gras studded with truffles and then stuff that into the <laughs> stuff that into the pheasant and cook that in a um, uh, a casserole, which kind of sounds amazing and really expensive. So. One of the some some of them it's so passed through the sieve so that, there's a lot of pounding there's a lot of a lot of labor involved in some of these dishes and these are the kinds of things between the foie gras the pheasant the um, the truffles the what seems to be crazy amount of labor uh, this is I think the kind of thing that makes people just roll their eyes at the idea of classical French cooking and then. You point out that chicken Maryland is fundamentally, it's fried chicken. Not all classical French cooking is as complex as the pheasant recipes are.
And to be fair, Escoffier, to Escoffier, he does mention that any dish suitable for a chicken supreme, remember that's the breast, skin on, and the first winglet attached, is also suitable for pheasant, and he's not going to write them all over again. Pheasants, from Escoffier's treatment, get lots of foie gras and truffles. It's also a decent amount of cabbage in the forms of regular cabbage, sauerkraut, or Brussels sprouts. Now, I agree with this combination, not only for pheasant, but also for venison. Braised red cabbage is a great accompaniment for either one. The part I read about hanging the birds to develop the flavor was something that we did at the Golden Mushroom. Chef Milos used to hang the pheasants in the walk-in. Now, he had a deal worked out with the growers that whole birds would be sold to us. He tested if head up or feet up was a better way to develop the flavor. I don't think we determined one was noticeably better than the other. One funny moment was when the health inspector came. Now, they don't announce themselves, they just show up. We cooks scurried about to get a few large stock pots to put the birds in and cover the pots with sheet pans and probably put something else on top of that. Uh, in that same walk-in were saddles of lamb hanging to age. They were commercial lamb, not from you know, Frank the lamb guy. So I guess that part was okay. Uh, I don't know. I don't remember if the uh, health inspector busted us on pheasants in the stock pots, but... <laughs> It was funny. Now, at the Golden Mushroom, it was my job to butcher the pheasants. Uh, another fellow did all the plucking. Uh, so uh, how we would serve them, I would separate the breast cavity from the rest of the body. So if you just imagine chicken and pheasant, they pretty much the same. Remove the leg portion from the rest of the rest of the upper part of the body. The wishbone and the winglets left the drummies on. Uh, the wishbone was removed, and I've actually talked about that before, uh, especially for Thanksgiving, cutting the wishbone out, which can be a little challenging, only because the knife has to be, you have to move the knife blade up and get your fingers out of the way in case the knife slips. And so there can be a risk of cutting yourself. Getting the wishbone out of the bird before you roast it makes slicing just magnitudes easier. It's so much more enjoyable. Uh, then, so wishbones removed, skin's left on, backbone's left on. The whole thing is wrapped in thin layers of fat back and then tied. And then that go, that's put into the place for the evening cooks when they go to service. Um, at night for service, one whole pheasant is going to give at least two orders. Uh, they would roast the pheasant, sear it first on the uh, fat backside, then roast it in the oven to done, and that would be served with a leg quarter. Now, the leg quarters were braised with apples, onions, carrots, juniper berry, red wine, and stock. Now, pheasant legs spit something fierce when they get hot or put into a hot pan. And I had more than a few not small grease burns from bracing those legs. Uh, all told, once they're in the oven, it takes about 90 minutes for them to be fully done and tender. But oh my God, if you do them well, they're, they're just fantastic. 
So the Pheasant main course came with one braised leg quarter uh, and the whole thing uh, with some of the slices of the breast got the braising liquid, which was finished into a sauce. Now, I don't remember the accompaniments, but spatzel would have been a good one. Now, here's one more thing about service at a place like the Golden Mushroom. So, remember, it's a certified master chef. If you've had chicken legs, you know, turkey legs too, there's, there's tendons in there. And, you know, big deal. We know they're there, so we just eat around them. In Turkey, they're a little bit... They're almost kind of bone-ish, whereas in chicken, they're more ligamenty. Um, but in the pheasant, they, they develop to kind of firm, almost bone-ish things. So once those legs are done and they're still warm, with a pair of needle-nose pliers, pull those little tendons out. Now, at home, okay, that's nice, but who cares? But when you're going to spend the kind of money the golden mushroom was asking, the last thing you want your guest to do is be pulling things out of his or her mouth while they're dining. That's and at home it's fine. At the barbecue it's fine. And, you know, white table called five star restaurant. There's an ill in there is an inelegance to that, which we could fix. Now another tip I want to share about pheasant breast that applies to chicken breast also. The restaurant often did catered parties to people's homes. One such party, we served grilled pheasant breast supremes. To prepare the pheasant for this, Milos asked me to remove a piece of sinew from the breast. When cooked, it would be tough for the guests to eat. Now, in, just like the leg sinews get a little tougher in the pheasant than in the chicken, the chicken has this piece of silver skin and most people don't even know it's there. The sinew runs, we'll call it the shoulder, from the shoulder part down toward the tip of the breast, toward the sternum, and is about maybe one-third the width of the breast. It's nearer the breastbone than it is to the back, and so that would be where you, if you're getting um, whole chickens, when you cut the breast off of the frame and you cut through the sternum, the tenderloin is right under there. We call them chicken tenders. chicken tenders. It's technically not a tenderloin. Not a chicken, it would be called the chicken oyster, which is on the backside near the thigh. Really good piece of meat, very small. But once you take away the tenderloin, which also has a thick sinew running through it, you can see silver skin part at the shoulder, and then there's this thin, really thin, almost translucent, piece of silver skin that goes into the chicken. So with the tip of a sharp knife, bony knife, or a paring knife, you can scrape the edge of the, well, scrape is wrong, slide the edge of the blade on top of the silver skin and just remove that piece of chicken to expose that silver skin. And then just get your knife under it and, and carefully slice that out. Now. There are a couple of things that happen. One, you're making a small piece of chicken, and then you have the rest, which is fundamentally the same size. It looks like the same piece of chicken, just a little smaller because you took a piece off. Now you have two pieces of chicken and this thing. 
Now, this thing is technically not inedible. You can eat it. No one really notices that you've been eating it all this time. Um, But I either save it for stock or cook it off and give it to the dogs. Is taking that thing out necessary? No. Is it actually beneficial to the customer or to you? It could be. When it's removed... So the nub is, the little piece that remains actually has a slightly different grain and texture than the rest of the chicken breast. The chicken breast, the big part, is more of the finer grain and texture we usually associate with chicken breast. The other nub piece, it's got a longer grain to it. It's kind of interesting how that works out. So, and I realized listening to words talking about something you have to see is is kind of it's kind of hard so the next time you get chicken on the counter take a look and see if you see that game bird legs are more tough than the breast meat but that applies to all birds chicken's the same turkey's the same duck legs make great confit because the long slow cooking process breaks down the tough muscle fibers half a roast duck was a huge thing 40 years ago. Everybody was serving roast duck. But it was certain to be horrible regardless how impressive the appearance. For the leg quarter to be edible, the breast was sawdust. Hey, thanks a lot. That's why they buried it in a pint of sticky sweet sauce. And just by the way, uh, maybe the most famous duck recipe is duck a l'orange and every. Colloquially, everybody serves it with something just obscenely sweet, which probably made from orange marmalade and then a couple of pounds of sugar and maple syrup just to boot. I'm kidding about the maple syrup. God, I hope I'm kidding about the maple syrup. Um, It was supposed to be made with Seville oranges, which are very bitter because duck fat is rich. The bitter was designed to cut through the fat and make make it an enjoyable dinner and not freaking dessert. But... That's the whole of the thread. Turkey has the same problem, which you might recall from a few weeks ago. Get the legs cooked just right, and the turkey is sand. Turkey breast is sand. Goose, too, but Scoffier lists goose in the poultry part. Now, except for the goose making excellent foie gras, Scoffier only likes young goose, and at that, not too much, it seems. Quail leg, quail legs, sounds like quail eggs, are not spared this problem even for their puny size. Whole quail, because really what else are you going to do, are generally stuffed with something grain and dried fruit and trust served with more grain and a terrible sauce and that's how quail have been served. They're sort of cute on the plate but a challenge to eat. You, for the, Part of the same problem. The quail, the whole thing is small, but the here, one of the reasons the legs are so tough is even if the birds don't fly, even if they're domestic, they are running all over the place, and quail can fly. Those legs are doing, well, both of them are doing a lot of work, but it's different kind of muscle fibers. And so tough legs are going to require more heat, and so those thin, really flavorful, Quail breasts are just cooked pencil erasers.
kind of too bad. If you get the quail, you could braise the legs, which for four little legs might seem more work than necessary, but slow roast them, if not braising them, uh, and saute their breasts. Quail skin, because the breasts are so small, they're going to cook pretty quickly, and, this, and the skin doesn't really get crispy, and uncrispy quail skin isn't a thrill to eat. So it's okay to take the skin off after you cook it. Scoffier does recommend deboning the quail from the back, stuffing them with force meat, um, foie gras, uh, and cooking the quail in a casserole with butter and good veal stock. Now, that's going to make a decent sauce. It doesn't get away from the problem of overcooked breast and undercooked legs or properly cooked legs and overcooked breast. But with the addition of the fat from the foie gras and the butter and the good veal stock in the casserole, it's going to help infuse a little bit of moisture into the dish. Now, moisture into the meat is an interesting thing. And I don't agree with the web search engine's answers about game birds being marinated. I don't really agree with the, anything being marinated, with a few possible exceptions. Skirt steak is one of those exceptions, but that's a different show. Marinades are acid, and acids denature protein. Now, that's fancy speak for acids break protein down. That's how they make tough meat seem tender. The marinade literally destroys the protein, by making the fibers shorter so it seems more tender. There's a consequence to this action. Broken protein chains release moisture as they break, which means it is not held in the meat. Now, there's some complex science I'm not going to get into, which involves heat, which also denatures protein and water loss. Marinades do, or can, add flavor and can seem to make the meat tender. They do not increase the juiciness of meat. That's entirely up to the cook. Milos was adamant that fresh, that the pheasant breast be cooked to medium rare. I know that's going to seem odd to a lot of folks since we've been told again and again to cook chicken to fully done. Duck breast also benefits from less cooking. Now, part of the odd thing about that is pheasant breast is white meat. The legs are dark meat. Duck is all dark meat. And so we're we sort of used to the idea of dark meats being cooked medium rare. We do that with steak and lamb all the time. Seems sort of weird. We know that duck is poultry. and But pheasant and partridge will benefit from medium rare cooking on the breast as well. Those Maillard ducks mentioned in the poultry episode are really amazing and medium rare. This is a serving suggestion. For flavor, it's the right one. For you on your plate, if it's not the right one for you, then cook it more. All right, so that really, we didn't go over recipes because the recipes are Ridiculous. <laughs> just, just, they are. One, there, there's a, a procedure called the sal, salmi, which is really fantastic. It, it is, even in the professional kitchen, there's a fair amount of work. And it is to cook the bird to underdone, take off the meat portions, 
pound the carcass and the trimmings, place that in a pan with white wine, shallots, some pepper, um, reduce that, then add espanol and game stock and reduce that some more, pass it all through a sieve, reduce it, pass it through a sieve again, reduce it, pass it through a sieve again, and add a little bit of butter, and then add the garnish. It's a lot of work. It's a flavorful dish, but it's a lot of work. So we're kind of avoiding that. So the things to do with, well, so anything that you would do with a skin-on, winglet-attached chicken breast, you could do with a pheasant breast. So let's say, let's invent one in here really quick, something that you could have at home. So let's assume you've got either Applejack, Calvados, or Brandy. So you, you on low heat, a hot pan, but this is, this is where it gets really confusing because it sounds like two things at the same time. A hot pan on low heat. What that means is that the pan is really, really hot. So when you add the skin on pheasant or chicken breast to it, it's, it the, you know, oil the pan first. Uh, clarified butter, ghee, um, regular olive oil, um, bacon fat, lard, something, not vegetable oil. The skin is going to it's going to seize. You're going to see it sort of shrink right away. One tendency for cooks is to immediately try to lift it when that happens. They see that something is going on in the pan. Oh my gosh, I have to move the bird. Don't touch it. If it's on high, it's going to burn immediately anyway. So not on high. So low to medium, low medium-ish heat. If you have one of those stupid push-button stoves, three or four-ish, give it a minute. And if you need to add a little bit more fat to the pan, that's fine. But as the skin starts to form a caramelization, because remember, caramelization is the function of amino acids responding to heat. It's called the Maillard reaction. It's, it will end up releasing itself from the pan. It's going to leave a little bit of de a little bit of fond foundation, a little bit of glaze on the pan. That's fine. We actually want that to happen. But put your chicken breast, pheasant breast, skin side down in the pan. Let it release itself. Get a good color on that. Then turn it over and get a good sear on the other side. Then um, some peeled, sliced apples. Pick which ones you want. Uh, green apples, Granny Smith will be much more tart than, say, a Honeycrisp. Um, there's a new-ish apple on the line called Cosmic, which is beautiful red. It looks like the looks like the apple you'd give your teacher. It's gorgeous, beautiful apple. Tastes good too. Uh, peeled, sliced, add those to the pan. Uh, take the, I'm sorry, I got ahead of myself. Take the, when the skin side is up and the flesh side is searing, and you got a good color on the flesh side. Take that out of the pan. Might need to add a little bit of, in this case, add whole butter because you're adding the apples and that would be a good flavor. Add the apples to that, let them color a little bit, and then a splash of Calvados or brandy or Applejack. If you're on a gas burner, either move the pan away or turn the gas off. Uh, alcohol in a hot pan will do expected and predictable things. And if there's open flame, one of those things is to flame up. 
Um, it has never happened in the commercial kitchen, not that I've seen. It is at least a concern that the flame will follow the alcohol back up into the bottle and make a bigger explosion. Never happened. Doesn't mean it can't, but safety is a really good idea. If you're on an electric burner, that's not going to happen. Uh, let the alcohol mostly cook out. Uh, a small detail for anybody who's concerned about it is the alcohol in wine or brandy or port or Madeira never completely is reduced to zero. There's always some portion left into the tenths of a percent, but there are there are people to whom this is important, and if that's your guess, you need to know that. Uh, then, your apples are cooked. They have been flamed or at least deglazed with the brandy. Now you add a little bit of chicken stock because that's what we can get the bones for. We can make chicken stock, let that reduce. Um, then you can either let it get all the way down and add some butter to that and, and move the butter in. And now you have so a nice sauce made from the deglaze of the bird with some apples and some applejack flavor and some stock and some butter. And that's one way to serve this whole thing. Now, if you're saying, wait a minute, my birds are sitting on the counter. Yes, I left that part out. Once you take the birds out of the pan, put them in the oven and check them for temp. And you decide if you want your pheasant to be mid-rare or not. Um, chicken will be done all the way. Uh, and then, but now that's, that's the thing you can do with pheasant. You can do that with duck. Uh... The apples would work with the duck. I, th I think I would want something, actually parsnips with the apples so the duck would be a good idea. You know, it would be funny is to add shredded Savoy cabbage with the apples for the pheasant because that would be really tasty. Um, but think about the flavor combinations that you want with that. And if you don't know what you want with it, then now this is at least one way to figure out what, what works together. Uh, but it's simple to do. We don't need to do all this pounding and sieving and straining. It's just, it's it's fun. It's nice. There's some crazy recipes for serving pheasant cold or chauffeur and showpieces. And I like this stuff. But I also know that this is this is old kind of, very few people cook this way. Um, so... There's ways to make it accessible, and that's the whole point of this series, is making it accessible. All right, folks, that's going to do it. That does conclude Chapter 9. Now, Chapter 10 is, is kind of fun. Now, as a culinary instructor, I had a lot of fun with Chapter 10. I'm turning to it. You can probably hear the pages moving. Chapter 10 is 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11 paragraphs. That's it. Is about composite entrees, which are like, um, think of like British meat pies or, um, well, we would call them like chicken pot pies or something in a crust uh, served hot. That's the whole of the chapter. But his point is, there's a few actual points worth mentioning, which I'll cover on the next one. But we're going to 11. Chapter 11 is cold preparations. And there's... 
<clears throat> there's a lot there, but that's good. Uh, we'll go over the composite octaves very briefly there because there's a little bit that's worth knowing about just to understand. And a lot of it's fussy, which we can either do or not do. But the, the part, so I would assign chapter uh, 10 and say there'd be a quiz on it. And before anybody had even looked at it, they all moaned. Of course, they didn't realize the joke until they either opened their book or got the quiz. And most of them never bothered to actually check the chapter out, which was too bad. But anyway, um, we'll continue that with color preparations. And that's that's some really fun stuff. And that's, that's doable. It's a fair amount of work, even at home, but it's worth doing. It's a good skill to learn how to do. Um, anyway, that's enough rambling on. Have a good week, and I'll see you soon. Music for the Culinary Libertarian Podcast is provided by Matthew Bankert at mattbankert.com.